Skyborne, Episode 2, Buoys in the Water, by K.G. Lockrams. It's the summer my brother was pipping me out to his friends and various kids in the neighborhood. One morning, my mother looks at him and says, take your brother out to play. I am eight. We rode our bikes to the town park about a mile from our home. Children had longer tethers from their parents in the 1970s than they seem to now. The park had swings, seesaws, horseshoe pits, barbecue stands, and picnic tables. We would sometimes go there as a family for weekend cookouts. On this day, my brother and I went because it also had a merry-go-wheel, which was an eight-foot diameter steel platform with metal pipes welded to the deck like railings. It was mounted on a center pivot of some kind set in the ground, and the height of the base from the ground varied with the contours of the bare earth. Get on, I'll spin you, he said. I loved that thing, so I climbed on and grabbed the bar closest to the outer edge. He began to spin me. Then faster, and faster. Slow down, I'm going to be sick, I called out. He kept spinning with all his might. I started to lose my grip on the handrail and began to slip off. Stop, I shouted. You should jump off, he replied. I could feel myself being pulled off the deck from the spin. As my grip slipped, physics took over and tossed me outward but my foot caught on the base of one of the railings. The force of the spin, combined with my foot serving as an anchor, caused me to be simultaneously thrown off and pulled halfway under the wheel deck. I lay on my back, barely clearing the underside of the deck as it continued to spin. I moved to try and shimmy out. A piece of metal from the underside of the plate deck cut through my shirt and the skin of my abdomen. I screamed for my brother to help me and sucked in my stomach. He just stood there. The second pass missed me, Before the third pass, I managed to scramble out from under it. He hadn't moved. He was standing in the same spot he had been before I had fallen off and under, wearing a vacant smile and showing no other emotion on his face. I mounted my bike and pedaled home, crying, bleeding, and terrified. Once home, as I told my mother what happened, he was lurking in the foyer outside the kitchen by the front door. As I finished talking, he entered the room. Is what your brother said true? She asked him, finishing the bandaging of my stomach. I told him he should have jumped off. She turned to me, grabbed me by the shoulders and said, You should listen to your brother. (laughs) The same summer a new elementary school was preparing to open. It was the building I had watched being struck by lightning from the newly added second floor of my childhood home. For kindergarten through second grade, I had either been driven to school or had taken the bus to the elementary school on the other side of town. I was excited for this new one to open. It was only four blocks from the house, so I could walk to it. It was completely modern. It had central air conditioning, and everyone I knew my age from the neighborhood would be going there. This was also America's bicentennial, and the town seemed to have more to do than usual. Everywhere I looked, there was a fair, festival, pageant, or civic project in commemoration of our independence as a nation. The county we lived in had a strong horse culture, and with it, a horse track that doubled as the county fairgrounds. Main Street would have a street fair each summer, as did the main park with the merry-go-wheel. Our father, as a sideline, decided to join a multi-level marketing business known as Bestline, which, at the time, sold everything from men's cologne to floor wax. He opened a business, our mom did the books, one day a basement full of cartons arrived, and we were all expected to sell the products. We had to use everything ourselves in order to answer questions potential customers may have had about the products. I enjoyed the soap on a rope formed like a purple hippo. 
If there was a fair, festival, or community event, we loaded up the white Chevy station wagon with product and family, and off we went to sell. I found the whole thing rather fun. Our parents put on their act, and for a day, we were a happy family. Plus, there was always lots to do at the fairs. Our mother used to say, Kit, you could sell ice to an Eskimo. And it was true. I sold the crap out of that stuff. Women loved my curly hair. This was the theme through my youth. My blue eyes and my ability to summarize the benefits of the various products. I loved the positive attention. Plus, there were funnel cakes, cotton candy, and cowplop bingo to pass the time. Our father didn't stick with things for long, so after a couple of years, it fell to the wayside and the cases of product sat under the basement staircase. One day, after the ice cream truck incident, I was riding my bike to visit a friend who lived across the street from the oldest of all the kids I had been pimped out to. My brother, on his own bike, was pulling out of said kid's driveway, saw me, and started pedaling as fast as he could toward me, his face twisted in rage. As he got closer, building speed, I realized he was going to ram me. I pedaled as fast as I could toward my friend's house, planning to cut to the sidewalk to avoid him, but misjudged the distance between us and it became clear I wasn't going to make it. I stopped and began to dismount my bike, leaning away from my brother while raising my bike to act as a shield. Before I could get off it, my brother hit my bike just where the handlebars joined the frame. My handlebars twisted sharply and stuck through the spokes of his front wheel, immediately locking it. My brother was tossed into the air, sailed over my bike, and landed in a heap by the street curb, crying out in pain. Get mom, he screamed. I went to get her. She picked him up off the road, shot me a dark look, said, I'll deal with you when I get home, and took my brother to the hospital. He had broken his collarbone. Unlike the incident with my sister, our parents didn't yell at me the way they had when she'd broken her arm, but my brother, although he was the aggressor, never forgave me for it. As I wrote this episode, I thought for the first time about the rage on his face as he left that kid's house, and I wonder if he had to cash some check he had originally arranged for me to cover. Not much had changed in the day-to-day of my life. Our father was the same and still consumed with flying. Our mother was still fighting her own battle with him and largely checked out regarding our lives. Our paternal grandmother was in the nursing home. My sister became withdrawn and my brother was planning his next move as his collarbone healed. As confusing and painful as it was, I loved my parents. We were hardwired for it. We want their approval and their love. I wanted the love of my older brother and sister, but they had unified early on. As I've said, they used to push me down the basement stairs. One such incident required stitches when I had cut my head open on the wrought iron railing. They also used to love to hide outside the bathroom door, one on either side of the doorway, and as I'd exit, they'd both stick out a foot and trip me. One time they did this, and I fell forward instead of down, nothing to stop my motion, and whacked my head into an outside corner of the opposite wall, splitting my forehead open, and again requiring stitches. They also used to love to douse me with glasses of cold water while I was taking a shower, and my brother used to pin me to the floor and tickle me until I'd cry for mercy or wet myself. Parents who find one child tickling another to the point the other child is crying or wetting itself need to realize this is not play. What it is, is a teachable moment in domination, abuse, and consent. Looking back, tickling me until I'd cry in full view of the family was my brother's earliest form of abuse toward me. It only escalated from there. My nervous tics were ever-present, and I started sleeping less as my nightmares worsened. 
I used to lay awake at night, hypervigilant of every sound in the house. I was afraid to leave my bedroom at night, even to pee. The bathroom disturbed me. And yet, some nights, I would leave my room, quietly set up the ironing board, and iron linens from the linen closet for hours, put it all away, go back into my room, and fall asleep just before it was time to get up and get dressed for school. Some nights after I'd been beaten, as I lay awake sore and crying, I used to hear the disembodied voice of an old black woman who would tell me things would be okay. It brought me great comfort and gave me something to anchor myself to when I needed it most, alone in the dark. That July was particularly hot, and my curiosity about the new school, coupled with the promise of air conditioning, got the better of me, and I decided to check it out. One of my friend's mothers, who was also once my den mother in Cub Scouts, worked as a secretary there. No one was around to play with, and none of us wanted to be outside, and I certainly did not want to be inside with my brother. I rode to the school on my bike, walked inside, entered the main office, and walked up to the counter. Kit, what can I help you with? My friend's mother asked. I thought for a moment, enjoying the air conditioning, and said, Do you have anything I can do? She smiled and said, Actually, yes. You can staple those dittos together, and pointed to three stacks of white paper covered in blue ditto ink, each with hundreds of pages. I spent the rest of the afternoon in the cool office, listening to game shows, drinking free soda, and falling in love with the smell of ditto maker ink. I came back often throughout the rest of the summer. She was so kind. When I look back on my childhood home, I see it in terms of hiding places under any bed, in any closet, and as a last resort, under the basement stairs. When the addition was finished, the room above the dining room had a closet with long, deep shelves that ran parallel to the stairwell connecting the dining room to the second story. I could climb up to the top shelf, which was the deepest, and hide there for hours, often falling asleep. The only other home of which I had deep knowledge was our mother's childhood home, We would, as a family, pack up the station wagon most summers and make the four-state drive to stay for a week or two. Our mother's father was a painter, or more accurately, an artist. He was well-known in the city he called home and did well enough to build a good life for his wife and two daughters. The house which he designed was modern at the time. It had poured concrete walls and floors, a stone exterior, and was built into the middle of a wooded hillside opposite a large stream. As you walked in the front door, you entered a deep and narrow hallway. The hall was lined with murals of different peoples from around the world on either side. The word welcome appeared in the various languages of said peoples. The door on the right led down to the basement and his home studio. At the end of the hall was a short flight of steps leading up to a landing. On the landing was a door to the backyard patio. The patio was separated from the wooded hillside by a low stone wall where chipmunks awaited their treats. A sharp turn to the right, and you entered the large living room with oil paintings, a ceiling painted with concentric ovals, and a fireplace with a hand-carved solid wood fire screen for when you needed to keep the draft down when not in use. Off the living room was the dining room. There was a mural of a desert on all four walls fading into an azure sky with white streaky clouds. To the left, off the dining room, was the small eat-in kitchen and another door to the outside. Also off the living room, to the right of the dining room and the left of the fireplace, was the nefarious staircase up to the next level. On that level was a bedroom over the garage at the front of the house, a bathroom with pink fixtures and tile opposite the steps, 
and to the right of the bathroom was a spare room with a pull-out sofa and bed. Between the spare room and the back of the living room fireplace was another, longer flight of stairs up to our grandparents' bedroom. It had a polished stone floor of some kind, a balcony, another full bath, two walk-in closets, and a short, built-in bookcase that protruded slightly into the room to form a mantletop for pictures and lamps. The back of that mantle died into another built-in bookcase. This upper bookcase could be pulled forward to reveal the attic. It was the coolest thing I had ever seen. When we'd visit, we'd spend at least a day at the museum where he worked, a day at the zoo where some of his murals were featured, and a day or two touring the breweries. You could always smell the breweries, and they smelled fantastic. Back then, you could get tours of the manufacturing facilities that no insurance company would ever allow today. And at the end of the tour, the beer gardens. You'd be given a handful of wooden nickels, which you could exchange for free beers. We'd also get to see our aunt, uncle, and our four cousins. I was the youngest of all the grandchildren and didn't really have much in common with them. We were too far apart in age and only saw each other once a year. They never once came to see us. When I'd ask our mother why, she'd say, your aunt doesn't make left turns. Given our aunt barely drove at all, the real reason was either the obvious torch our mother carried for her husband, our uncle, and or the fact that our father never encouraged them to visit. He was not liked by our mother's family, and no one hid it. The distance between our mother and her family, both physically and metaphorically, suited our father's abusive profile. One of the first things an abuser does is separate the abused from those who support them. Compared to our father, my uncle was a giant of a man. He had the biggest hands and broadest shoulders I'd ever seen. Our father wasn't much taller than five feet, but our uncle was over six. He always came in with a quick hello, a smile, and pizzas from everyone's favorite pizza place. He loved kids and was so at ease in any situation. He'd say hello to everyone and ask how they were, and when it came to our father, he'd look him in the eye, say his name, and nothing else. As if to say, I acknowledge that you're standing there, and that's all I've got for you. He felt to me to be exactly on the inside as he was on the outside, and he always felt safe. Our grandfather was a stoic man who could silence anyone with a single gaze of his piercing blue eyes and an arched eyebrow. He was distant but not unkind and had the most wonderful laugh. (laughs) I've thought about him a lot during COVID. Born in 1899, he traveled the world as a young man practicing his art. While he was traveling in his 20s, he managed to survive the flu of 1918, which killed more people than World War I. He also lived through World War I, as well as the Great Depression, World War II, the dropping of the atomic bomb, the Korean War, the first astronaut to circle the Earth, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Vietnam War, Nixon's impeachment, and more other history than I can even imagine. For all the horrors of the century he endured and witnessed, he managed to capture in his paintings the beauty of nature, life, and the world around him. Peoples, things, and places existing as they were, preserved in watercolor, pen and ink, colored pencil, or oils. He'd flick your head with a thimble-covered finger faster than you could say, I didn't do it! But the man had a talent for capturing the simple beauty and truth of things. Regarding his stoicism, given all the history he had seen and lived, given he had buried his second daughter when she was a toddler, given he had seven grandchildren, maybe he simply thought, what is there to say? Our grandmother had been a nurse, 
but mostly volunteered at the hospital at this point in her life. She adored me and made me feel loved in a way no one else in my life ever had. Always glad to see me, always had a smile and a kiss. When we'd visit, there were always freshly made cookies, vanilla ice cream, and enough cans of Hershey syrup to drown out anyone's worries. There was absolutely no doubt that I was her favorite grandchild. I was her last, a boy, which mattered to her, and she adored my curly hair, blue eyes, and big smile. What I wouldn't give for those curls, she'd say every time she saw me. She always gave me the cherry from her Manhattan, and when I think of her, I smell her perfume, her bath powder, cigarette smoke, and the slight smell of whiskey on her breath. This particular summer, just before school opened, they came to visit us. When they'd come to us, there'd always be wheels of cheese, summer sausage, and occasionally our grandfather would bring a painting he'd done and leave it behind. My brother never had much interest in either of our mother's parents. My sister hated our grandmother and feared our grandfather. But me, well, our grandmother would put me on her lap, bounce me up and down on her knees, and sing in my ear, I love you, a bushel and a peck, a bushel and a peck, and a hug around the neck. She'd tuck me in, read me a story, and when school started that fall, she walked me to the campus the first day. We had a bond that lasted until she died. I'm certain if not for her love and kindness, I would not have made it out of my family the person that I am. I would learn later she too had survived childhood sexual abuse. I often wonder if that played into her adoration of me. Did she know on some level? It seems survivors can often identify each other. It leaves an indelible impression. It was that fall that I was skyborne. My revelation that a thing which seemed dark and foreboding could reveal something beautiful filled me with one of the most frustrating emotions of my life. Hope. If unbridled, hope can make us foolish and disconnected from the reality around us. But if fettered, hope can wither and make us despair. I lived the next 20 years somewhere in between. At six years old, I became too old to sexually interest our father. I wondered how my brother made it to 11. I've often thought some other factor must have been introduced that caused the sudden shift in our father's attentions away from us. Maybe he found a younger boy outside the home that better suited his predilections. For as long as I could remember, for my father, sex was affection, and his punishments were what? Love? By the time my brother took over, my boundaries were destroyed. I wanted to have a connection to someone, anyone, and in those moments with the other boys, I made a type of connection. My desire was so strong to be liked, valued, wanted, seen, appreciated, loved. The boys my brother pimped me out to left me feeling soiled and used. Those exchanges were about power and control, and I compartmentalized the schism between how things appeared on the surface and the underlying realities. The consensual explorations with my friends felt safe and were normal, age-appropriate behavior. They meant nothing. They were not indicators of our future sexual orientations. They were just curiosity and learning about our bodies. My natural curiosity had been twisted by my brother pressing me into service, and it took me years of therapy to pick apart and separate the two, the feeling curious from the feeling contaminated. Touch feels good. Connection feels good. But my context had been polluted. I was yearning for some form of human connection while living in a family of attachment disorders. The remainder of my elementary school years were the years of riding our bikes together as a family dressed in similar outfits. 
running together as a family, dressed in similar outfits, playing Christmas music on street corners as a family. Thankfully, the matching outfits finally fell by the wayside. I blame the Sears catalog and the Brady Bunch for those Von Trapp family years. Then I became roller skating as a family. I do have fond memories of the roller rink with its live organ music and practicing skating moves like shoot the duck in the basement with my sister. These conscripted family activities were our father's attempt to build his public brand as good husband and father, while behind the scenes things were falling apart at home. By fifth grade, our parents' bickering had become increasingly violent. I remember one evening our mother, while standing in the hallway, threw one of her high-heeled shoes at her father as he stood in their bedroom doorway. All the doors upstairs were hollow core doors with wood veneer. He had the presence of mind to close the door quickly. It struck the door with enough force to pierce the veneer and stick to the door. That was the last physical fight I saw between them. After that, it was always behind closed doors. And sometimes, our mother would wait for us to go to bed and then drive herself to the hospital, all the while denying anything was wrong the next day. Again, the double messaging, the gaslighting. It was difficult to find one's inner truth in a house of lies. My greatest sanctuary was the record player and headset we had in the dining room. I would spend hours listening to vinyl records our parents had ordered through one of the mail-order clubs. My father always had to keep up with the Joneses, and the records were just an extension of that. If a neighbor bought a modest above-ground pool, he'd have to buy a bigger one. If a neighbor had a small deck added to the back of their house, he'd have to build a large enclosed version, and so on. So when the albums would arrive month after month, he'd never open them. They'd just be put away. My mother encouraged any activities that required nothing of her, and so I'd be left alone for hours exploring their LPs, both old and new. As young as six, by my own choice, I was listening to things like Henry Mancini and obsessed over Moon River. I found Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence enthralling. The opening lyric, Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk to you again. Spoke to my sleeping disorder in a way I could not have articulated. I am a rock. Put words to my desire to find a way to be less vulnerable. West Side Stories somewhere. Let me know I wasn't the only person yearning for a better life. Peter, Paul, and Mary's Puff the Magic Dragon was my gateway to Mary Travers. And the first time I heard her sing, This song is love, I cried. Erica, with the windy yellow hair gave me hope that some adults do see struggles children face. And her children, one and all, helped counter my father's pathological need to have more than those around us. When my father would go on some racist rant, I had South Pacific's carefully taught to offset the rhetoric, reminding me that hate is taught. I had Janice Ian's Society's Child to further open my mind about race. And given I lived in a county with an active Ku Klux Klan, and had seen a cross burning as a child, it was much needed. Barbara Streisand's People, I didn't understand how needing people made me very lucky, but I was desperate to believe she was right. I'd spend hours with Etta James, Aretha Franklin, Johnny Mathis, Stan Getz, Elton John, Neil Diamond, John Denver, Linda Ronstadt, The Carpenters, Frank Sinatra, Anne Murray, Bing Crosby, The Captain and Tennille, Petula Clark, The Eagles, James Taylor, Carly Simon, The Fifth Dimension, and countless others. That headset and those records were an oasis of ideas and music. Just as our father had his personal brand campaign, so did our mother. They were both on the board of the local YMCA, both involved in our church, both involved in scouting, 
Our father had Kiwanis and Rotary Club. My mother had a local civics group and her bridge club. Their participation in these organizations was further proof that when our parents were around others, they were capable of being civil to one another. At home, they just didn't bother. During those years, I was always thrilled when it was our mother's turn to host her bridge club. The house would be clean, there'd be snacks aplenty, our father wouldn't be around, and everyone was on their best behavior. She'd set up card tables, snacks, and ashtrays, and there'd be prizes and gossip. It was something our mother always looked forward to hosting or attending, and always put her in a good mood for the day. I'm in third grade now, and the new school was fantastic and modern. It had rooms with movable and collapsible walls. The bathrooms had a large circular water fountain at least five feet in diameter, where we could all wash our hands. The water flow was activated by a foot pedal. There was a school store, a beautiful gymnasium, a large open cafeteria that transitioned into a stage at the opposite end from the kitchen, and I already mentioned the air conditioning. The grounds were equally well done. There were swings, jungle gyms, a half court, a fort complete with faux cannons, these weird concrete saddle-shaped creatures on heavy-gauge springs that we could rock forward and backward on, and a tall metal slide that was so fast you'd practically eject at the bottom. And in the sun of the summer, the metal would get so hot it would practically burn the skin right off the backs of your legs. It was fantastic. I couldn't wait to go to school every day. As things went in my life, third grade wasn't so bad. Now nine and in the fourth grade, my brother was a high school freshman and drinking and smoking pot. One day at breakfast, he and our mother had gotten into an argument. They were facing each other. I saw his hand curl into a fist, and suddenly he punched her in her stomach as hard as he could. She doubled over and able to catch her breath, and he ran out of the house to go to school. He and our father were fighting all the time now, both verbally and physically. My mother, sister, and I now lived with two physically abusive men. Nothing ever came of his assault on our mother. Our father couldn't have cared less, considering he had sent her to the hospital on more than one occasion himself. And for our mother, the sun always rose and set on her firstborn child. One night at dinner, my brother was riding me about something. I was fully in his sights now, and it was an endless barrage. Our parents didn't intervene much, which I felt was part of their general distancing from me after his revelation that I'd been blowing my friend. He said something particularly cruel, and for the first time in my life, I opened my mouth to say something in my defense. And couldn't. I literally could not speak. I had the words in my head, but the muscles in my throat seized, and all I could do was make a sort of wheezing noise. Everyone found this hilarious. I found it terrifying. And in another first, I pushed my chair back from the table and went to my room without permission. You'll pay for that later, my father called out. Fine. I didn't care. What was one more whipping? That same fall, my mother was at a neighbor's house for bridge club. She had left her brother in charge of my sister and I. My sister was unimpressed and spent the time in her room with her door closed, listening to ABC's TV broadcast on her radio and reading. My brother was upstairs watching TV or getting high. I was sitting in the first floor living room in my pajamas, also watching TV. My brother suddenly appears in the living room, walks over to where I'm sitting, and lunges at me. He pulls me from the sofa, throws me to the floor, jumps on top of me, and pins me by sitting on my biceps with his knees. Don't tickle me, I said. I'm not going to. Out of nowhere, he produces one of my favorite things, an oversized plastic hairbrush I'd gotten from our grandmother that was shaped like a baseball bat. Plastics of the 1970s were substantial and dense. It made for a solid weapon. 
Since he'd been nowhere near my room leading up to this, his attack was clearly premeditated. His choice to use something that came from one of the few people in my life that I knew in my soul loved me was a masterstroke of cruelty. Aside from the sound of the brush connecting with my skull and the TV noise in the background, there was no other noise. Smack. 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 Snap. The brush snapped in two, separating where the bristles transitioned to the handle. He threw the pieces aside, rolled off me, and went back upstairs without saying another word. The pain was tremendous. I was sobbing on the burnt orange wall-to-wall carpeting in the fetal position. I couldn't find my glasses. I didn't know what to do. My sister remained in her bedroom not 20 feet from me and would have been no comfort to me anyway. I ran out of the house, went to the neighbor where I knew her mother was playing bridge three blocks away. On the way there, I imagined being greeted by the neighbor at the door, taken inside and comforted. I had a long history of being well-regarded by the women in our mother's bridge club, but I'd also learned it was our duty to keep our family's dysfunctional secret, and to break the code of silence could come with a price. All children in dysfunctional families learn this code. I stood at the front door atop the short concrete staircase with the wrought iron railings and managed to get myself under some semblance of control. The best I could do was a kind of exhausted, ragged breathing. I knocked on the door, and the woman who lived there answered. I need to see my mother. The woman looked me up and down, clearly assessing the situation, and said, Wait here, and closed the door. It's October. I'm nine. I'm standing outside in my pajamas. Wait, wait here? What the actual fuck? When my mom came to the door, I lost control and broke into fresh tears. I was practically incoherent as I told her what had happened and pleaded with her to come home. Rather than take me into her arms and comfort me as I had fantasized, her face hardened. She wasn't empathetic. She wasn't concerned. What was she? I didn't quite recognize the look on her face. What are you doing here? You're embarrassing me. Go home. I'll deal with you later. And she went back inside and closed the door. The look on her face was embarrassment. Not a word of kindness, not a touch of comfort. In that short exchange, I was told once again I was doing something wrong in seeking her protection and comfort and was sent back home to be dealt with later. Sent back to the brother who had just beaten the snot out of me and the sister who had become a fixture in her bedroom. I had no choice, and I walked back home, defeated. Fifth grade was remarkable for two reasons. One day while standing in line in the hallway waiting for the first graders to exit the gym, One of them, a girl, locked eyes with me. As she walked toward me, she smiled an enormous, radiant smile and passed by. We both turned our heads to maintain eye contact. Now I was smiling too. I'd seen her around school that year. She was hard to miss. She was always impeccably dressed in colorful dresses, bald, and full of energy. And cancer. Later that year, I participated in a reading program where the upper grades would be paired with the lower grades for a program designed to encourage reading and community inreach at the school. She was paired with me, and we would read stories to one another. She had such a thirst for life and took in everything and everyone around her. She asked me about my hair, which at the time was a big, dark, blonde mess. Oh, my mom cuts it, I said, assuming she was wondering who had done that to me. Silence. Aren't you going to ask me about mine? She asked and laughed. Where is your hair? 
I don't know, but I hope it comes back one day, she giggled. The next time I saw her, I was in line for the cafeteria. Again, she was in another line coming toward me from the opposite direction. As she passed, she looked at my hair, made eye contact, and said, Hey, Baldy. We both laughed. Her face would light up, and her eyes radiated hope. Her name was Tanya. She lost her battle with cancer not long after. She spent less than 30 minutes in my life, yet I have thought of her lightness of spirit, her smile, and the hope in her eyes countless times throughout my life. What a gift she gave me. Later that spring, as the school year was coming to a close, it seemed my classmates started developing crushes on each other. Apparently, I developed a crush too, on our math teacher. Why are you always staring at Mr. I, one of my friends asked me in math class. What do you mean? I really didn't know. You're always watching him. Was I? I turned and looked at him. He was a young man, not long out of college, who worked construction during the summer. He had a dark complexion, was very muscular, with a huge mane of dark wavy hair, full lips, a cleft chin, and a full mustache. He was clad in tight polyester from head to toe and had the hairiest forearms I'd ever seen on a man. It's weird. Stop being a fag. At that time, for someone that age to call someone a fag was one of those words which may or may not have actually carried the derogatory undertone used against someone who was actually gay. Fag was hurled as a general insult like spaz or dork. We heard it from our parents who did mean it in the derogatory, but we were still putting all that context together. Typically, when we'd call someone a fag, we just meant the person was odd in some way. But I had heard that word already from our father about Jeff at the airfield. And her mother always referred to one of the tellers at her bank as that faggoty teller, Michael. I had a feeling about what it meant, but I never really thought much about it. After school, when I got home, I pulled out our well-worn dictionary with the white pleather cover. Anytime we would call out, how do you spell? The answer would always be, look it up. I'm not your dictionary, which served me well in the long run. Our dictionary was unabridged, which also made it great for pressing flowers. And the one I'd put in there last summer was now perfectly preserved. I laid down on my belly on the living room floor and flipped to the F's. Faggot. Noun. A bundle of twigs, sticks, or branches bound together. See also homosexual. That was a word I didn't recall hearing. Homosexual. Pertaining to, characteristic of, or exhibiting homosexuality. A homosexual person. On to homosexuality. Homosexuality. Noun. Sexual desire for others of one's own sex. I closed the dictionary. Huh. 